Hello and welcome to the Randomly Generated History Club, where three non-historians pick a year at random and try to learn things about it. I'm Will and I'm here with my two friends, Anna and Ant. Hi. Uh, hello. Oh, uh, uh, sorry. That's okay. We, yeah. We're just eager. We are very eager. <laughs> hello, eager friends. Hello. <laughs> this week we're talking about the year 1430. Now let's each give our three-word preview of what we're discussing today. Ant. Too many Eric's. Too, Too many. Too many. How many do we think that is? Six or seven, probably. Yeah, yeah, six or seven. And Anna? Useful woman qualities. Mm. Useful woman qualities. Yes, I'll just be naming the things I like about myself. That's good. <laughs> um, and mine is French, but good. <laughs> Impossible. A, you are really changing your tune here. <laughs> You're growing as a person. It's worrying. <laughs> I'm fully grown. Uh, I would wait. Yeah, let's see what uh, how we feel at the end of that. <laughs> right, let's go. Okay, so this week I'm going to talk about Philip of Valois-Burgundy. Uh, Philip was born on the 31st of July, 1396, mm-hmm. in Dijon, in France. Um, and he was the fourth child but first son, which matters uh-huh. to the history books, yes. of the <laughs> yeah. Duke of Burgundy, uh, who was also called John the Fearless. This is his dad. Great mm. name. And his great-grandfather was John II, King of France. Had a bit of fear. So, come again? Ha- he had a bit of fear. He that, was, that, was, that was exactly yeah, right, yeah. yes. John II. John the Trepidatious. <laughs> John the somewhat trepidatious <laughs> of France. And uh, so he was a French nobleman, and I have a lot of time for this particular type of french nobleman because though he wasn't because he, he wasn't really french first of all he was okay. like burgundian uh-huh. uh, okay okay yeah uh, and is so that, at this is that time how you say it burgundian burgund but yeah so he's from burgundy yeah burgundian. burgundian yeah that sounds silly well, well it, yeah it's not really something people say very much these days <laughs> it's just like a, a nice rich cab <laughs> right <laughs> exactly i know wine <laughs> Exactly right. And so at, at this time, he was pretty competitive with like the wider French kingdom. And later in his life, he made an alliance with the English uh-huh. against the French. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, he, so Will hasn't changed No, no, no. This tune is the, sa- it's the same tune. It's the same old tune. It's just smash mouth on repeat. It's God Save the King. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I'm just a huge fan of people who try to bring, bring the French and British together. <laughs> Uh, Under British rule. Especially if they're trying to be brought together in an alliance against other French people. Yeah, Yeah, makes sense. And uh, so his exciting bit of his life really kicked off in in 1419 when he, uh, when Philip became Duke of Burgundy, when his dad was assassinated. Oh, should have been a little more fearful, (laughs) sounds like. (laughs) Should we, you know, should we put the top up on this motorcade? Mr. President, like, like, no, no, no. Seems like there was one thing John should have feared. <laughs> John, the in retrospect, not quite fearful enough. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, and it turns out that being assassinated as a duke was just something that happened yeah. quite yeah, regularly yeah. In, that, in those days. And Philip had been in, in a spot of bother with Charles, who was the Dauphin of France or the heir apparent. Uh, cheesy of, of potato France. of France. <laughs> yeah. So this, this confused me for a while. Yeah. So it turns out he's not a potato, <laughs> and, and he's nor is he a dolphin. Like like Charles is not the name of like some princely dolphin. Yeah. Um, so I could get a bit confused for, for a few hours on this. But we um, would watch a show called Charles the Princely Dolphin. Yes. Absolutely, oh, okay. we will make Good. this. Yeah. 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 Um, maybe we can use. 
some AI image <laughs> yeah, creation. Right thing. on that. So make that for us. Okay, so um, uh, so this non-dolphin guy was uh, was the, his brother-in-law, by the way. So it's uh, basically his extended family member was was plotting to to kill his father. So unsurprisingly, he oh. didn't really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, he didn't like that that had happened. So naturally, he had to make them all pay. Uh, and <laughs> so in response... He could have just skipped the family reunion and gotten over it. It's more like John the Wick. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is Philip the Wick. Philip the Wick. <laughs> um, and so in response, he continued to fight the uh, the Armagnac Burgundian Civil War, which I think was basically a kind of drunken brawl. Cognac <laughs> free wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and that brawl, and it's a brawl that became so big, it kind of became entangled in the in the Hundred Years' War. Mm. Uh, so it's very, you know, quite a large one. And then, and then in 1420, Philip then allied himself with Henry V of England, okay, of Agincourt fame. Um, under the Treaty of Troyes. And in, in 1423, his sister Anne then married the Duke of Bedford, who was like regent at the oh, time okay. of England. Okay. So, so at this point, he's just like completely all in he's on all the English on the side. English. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and um, unsurprising, really, given that they assassinated his, his, his father. Yeah. Um, and then in one of the more momentous things he got up to in his life, um, it was his troops who captured Joan of Arc. Oh, uh, and oh then, wow. And then sold her to the Brits, to the English, so oh, they nice. could try and they could bring her to trial for all wow. her demonic activities. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's like, he's really said goodbye to the French. Yeah. Really, yeah. <laughs> You're turning on Joan of Arc. Yeah. Exactly. So there's no it's way like back. There's absolutely no way back from that. Turning on cheese and baguettes. <laughs> um, except that there is a way back from that because despite all this, he, he always made sure he hedged his bets. Uh, and so in 1435, which is about 10 years later, he, he, he saw this option to increase his power. Mm. So he, he threw his you know, reserve parachute and broke the alliance with England and then try, signed the Treaty of Arras, which recognised Charles VII as, as King of France. So for a whole variety, he did it for a whole variety of reasons, but basically it was just naked self-interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... Um, to increase his power. But what did did it work? Did he get more power? He got a little bit more power. Okay. I have a lot of time for that in general. So I think <laughs> so, so so he then then immediately attacked attack Calais, which as we all know and think of today is, is an English possession, was an English possession then. And 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 uh and then he so he broke his alliance with but yeah, but then after that he then broke his his alliance with the French again, again, ag- further. Oh my in, god! In 1439, uh, to re- to support the revolt of the French nobles, so he was just, just, just flip flopping. Yeah. Did anybody trust him at that point? I don't, I don't know. I don't think they did really. No. <laughs> um. Uh, so yeah, he he was basically just looking out for number one um, yeah. all the way to the end. Um. So he's by the way, his like the thing he is known as is is Philip the Good. Despite all this, <laughs> are you sure it's not Philip the Good at reneging on alliances? Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or is everyone else so bad that he was the good one? <laughs> Philip the Good, I guess. Yeah, yeah. When considering, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not entirely clear what he's like good at. What, what became of him then after this? What became of him? Yeah, did he die <laughs> suddenly? Well, he's not. He's not still r- r- ruling Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> but like after all the skullduggery back and forth, yeah, surely there's consequences. Well, the, the consequences were so eventually the French, then um, all the all the the rest of the French nobles basically rounded on him, and there was a sense that he was he was getting too much power, okay. and so they all ganged together to try and then undermine him systematically. So it all he, he got his comeuppance eventually. Okay. Ah. Um, so, uh, but one of the most notable things about him was his love life. Ooh, uh, and uh, can you guess how many? documented 
documented mistresses he has. Oh. Okay. This I want to is... know the process why, whereby the French document mistresses. <laughs> yeah. Do, do they all had to show their papers. What or ministry something? does that go through? <laughs> <laughs> um, documented, I guess. Yeah. Like, I don't know. What's a big number? A hundred? A hundred oh. mistresses seems like a lot. I mean, good God, I was going to say 12, and even that seemed like a stretch. 12 and 100. So the actual number is he had 24 wow. documented mistresses. Okay. That's um, a lot. I mean, we can, I think we can assume it's usually a one yeah, to four ratio. There is a one to four ratio of documents. <laughs> so undocumented undocumented it probably mistresses. was 100 yeah, plus yeah, yeah. overall. And, um, <laughs> and he fathered a, at least 18 illegitimate children. Wowee. Illegitimate children. So it's just tremendous stuff. So he's Philip, and, Philip the Good at. Uh, yeah. Mistressing. Um, mistressing. Best <laughs> yeah, mistressing. Yes. Yeah. And enjoying the company of of women. So there, yeah, there you have it. So that's Philip the Good of Burgundy. Um just a French, just a French dude who double crossed a bunch of people, really. What does that um what does that stamp look like in your passport? <laughs> oh, I guess it's a tramp stamp. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Oh god. Well done, well done, Philip, I guess. The customs officials at Heathrow frown at you if you ask them to stamp it there though. <laughs> but he did catch us catch us Joan of Arc, so yeah. gotta be appreciative. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay, today, uh, too many Eric's. 15th century, as we know, as Will's just discussed, time of political unrest, the Hundred Years' War between England and France, the rise of the Ottoman Empire, and the repercussions of all this warring uh, going on. Um, you know, there's new formed alliances or newly broken political alliances economic and trade disruption, and also the spread of plague. So a lot going on. Our story takes place in the Nordics, where the Kalmar Union of 1397 was still in effect. The Kalmar Union was whereby Denmark, Norway, and Sweden were under a single monarch. Okay. So they're a single uh, kingdom. This was enacted by the exceptional diplomat and very ambitious Queen Margaret I of Denmark, She came to power when the Swedes rebelled against their unpopular king and the people turned to her for assistance and so she came in and they appointed her uh, queen. She gave them all the herring they could stand. (laughs) There's so much herring. All the herring and rye bread they could eat. (laughs) I do like that. That's a good combo. Uh, She uh, then took Norway as well because the king uh, died and left it to her um, and so therefore the Kalmar Union was formed. Um, and it's called Kalmar Union because that's the that's the name of the city in Sweden where the seat of oh, power was. Oh, not because they ate a lot of fried shrimp. Yeah, not a lot of calamari. Is that squid, squid, squid. My bad, <laughs> calamari. Yes, yeah. So all this forms, but the backdrop to the swashbuckling tales that we're about to be unleashed upon you now. Uh, enter one Eric of Pomerania. Ooh, so called. Because he was from Pomerania. <laughs> he was the son of the Duke of Pomer- Pomerania, which is located on the south coast of the Baltic Sea. It spans Germany and Poland to the, mm. today. Um, but he was born in 1382. And Eric of Pomerania happened to be the grandnephew of Queen Margaret I. And in 1396, when Eric was just 14, she chose him to be his heir. And there was a few reasons for this. Uh, Eric was of high stock. He was from the House of Griffins, which is a house of nobility. Oh. Um, he And obviously blood relative to hers, but he also had family connections to both Denmark and Sweden, and he had connections through his father to the Holy Roman Empire. So, um, nothing to do with like aptitude, cunning, intellect. <laughs> I mean, no. When when have we learned of a ruler being chosen for his aptitude? <laughs> but like he had a lot of like, you know, the sprawling 
uh, tendrils of sort of connected power. He sounds great to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, just just this family connections prop up a shaky alliance of these three countries. He ascended to the throne in 1397 under the stewardship of Margaret I, who, you know, she was like the regent, effectively. Um, under the titles, titles of King Eric III of Norway, King Eric VII of Denmark, and King Eric XIII of Sweden. Wow. Right. <laughs> so there's at least 13 Eriks plus 7, that's 20, plus 3. 23 Eriks. That's and, then, a lot. and then this guy. That's a, a, and, and, yeah. and, well, he was he was at least the twenty third Eric. Oh, I see. Yeah, across all three places. Um, <laughs> yeah, I is, mean, it's a strong name, but is, there are other ones. There are other ones. Too many. Uh, not all was plain sailing for Eric of Pomerania, though. His people became extremely unhappy with the high taxes, taxes, and so no. too were another powerful body. Cue the booze and dramatic music. Boo! Dramatic music. The Hanseatic League. Ooh. So do you guys know who these are? Yeah. Aren't yeah. they a, like a loose coalition of merchants pretty from much. the Baltic Sea? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The Hanseatic League, also known as the Hansa, powerful trade and economic alliance that emerged in Northern Europe during the late 12th century, and they actually lasted until the 17th century, uh, is initially established as a group of merchant guilds and trading towns to protect and promote you know, mutual interests. Did they invade Naboo? <laughs> Exactly the people that invaded Naboo from uh, uh, the Phantom Menace. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. This is exactly who it was. Yeah. Um, so we're we talking about Jar Jar. No, Jar Jar's from Naboo. Jar Jar's from Naboo. Yeah, he's, Pomeranian. he's Pomeranian. Okay, I'm sorry. Which is in Pomerania. <laughs> Which is in Pomerania. Right, right, right. Anyway. So uh, these folks were extremely powerful and extremely rich at this stage. You know, for example, they founded Hamburg and Lübeck. You know, they had... Droid army. Droid army. (laughs) They had a massive droid (laughs) army and a large flotilla of ships. They had the Senate in their pocket, that's for sure. They They pulled them all off. Yeah. Palpatine Palpatine just pulling the strings in the background. Um, But they they also had a large flotilla of ships for trade, as you'd need from the Baltics. To be a merchant. And to be a merchant. And they also had not just that, but for also Move the merch. (laughs) Move the merch. They had a lot of t-shirts and hats and cups. They had Um, Danny on the merch table out front. (laughs) Uh, But uh, they also had like massive naval flotilla for like protection. So like, you know, actual like, you know, armed, you know, ships. Uh, Hell's Angels protecting the merch. They also actually formed the basis of even modern day European trade law. Uh, Well, antecedent, you know, it's, it's... progressed a little oh, bit. Oh, please get into the nuances of trade law. Please, <laughs> please, please. Um, just picture like a lot of fat cats, a lot of cigars and like, you know, boats full of like wheat or whatever okay. was traded. I don't All know. right. Got it. What, like what was traded in the Baltics? Like, wheat. Er- wheat, I guess. You, you got it. Um, so <laughs> anyway. No further detail needed. <laughs> if I don't think that was too little detail <laughs> in the end. Too much detail on not the right thing. <laughs> so all this wheat everywhere, the Hanseatic League, they're extremely influential and had the monarch scared. Uh, it was part of this reason that King Eric married Philippa of England, a strategic alliance, because mm. Philippa was the daughter of King Henry IV of England. And they were hoping to strike up a powerful alliance to counter, like, make a counterbalance uh, to the trade juggernaut of the Hanseatic League. Mm. Um, didn't really work out very well because the Hanseatic League were able to apply a lot of pressure to Eric, 
financially and also through open arms and conflict where they were actually actively fighting. And wheat doesn't grow very well in England. <laughs> wheat doesn't grow. <laughs> um, the people turned on Eric, this really unpopular warfare and the high taxes. Sweden withdrew from the Kalmar Union oh. and he was subsequently deposed in 1439. Oh, no. So Eric was incised and refused to recognise the, de- the de- deposition, um, but he was forced to leave Denmark and do the only thing anyone would do in that situation, which is... Go on crusade. Go on crusade. Cru- uh, yeah, I'm going to say crusade as well. He became a pirate. <laughs> oh, that's way better. <laughs> yep, he became a pirate and took on the moniker the Pirate King. Wow. Which is pretty cool. And he fled to his homeland of Pomerania, which was still controlled by his family. And so as a pirate... Eric started attacking the same Hanseatic League fleet that had been a thorn in his side for, during his reign. And he targeted the merchant vessels and just generally disruptive um, taking ships and wheat price shot up, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not sure about his ships that he commanded, but we are pretty confident that he had likely had a fleet of ships, not just like one pirate ship, but he had a fleet of them and he was probably controlling them not just at sea swashbuckling, which no doubtly he did, but also from land in Pomerania where he's able to sort of shout really loudly and, like, and strategize and yeah. stuff like that. Why do people swash buckles? <laughs> well, buckles un- unswashed buckles really are gaudy. They're really <laughs> passive. Yeah, or unbuckled swashes. Unbuckled swashes. Yeah, you can't walk around in public with an unbuckled swash. Oh my gosh. Also, can I ask, yep. so does he then have a stunning and emotional redemption arc which is in Return to Power? Well, first of all, he has to swing from a chandelier. And then go from one rope from one ship to another ship and uh, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's all that kind of good stuff. Um, well, so the thing is, right, that from the safe harbour, he kind of had a pretty profitable career as a privateer, which was being a privateer at this time was not super uncommon. Yeah. It was like a pretty legitimate, like, you know, you go to trade school for a few years, become a privateer <laughs> and like, you know, you, you, you know, get yeah. educated that way. Um, so it wasn't super uncommon, but his sort of, you know, vitriolic targeting of the Hanseatic League was kind of slightly unique. Um, he's a bit of a folk hero in this area as well, but he eventually sort of retires from this and what we do know is that he retired and he inherited the Duchy of Pomerania and was the Duke of Pomerania. God, it'd be nice to be like, yeah, I'm a pirate for a while knowing yeah, that you yeah. have a duchy to fall back yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and he died at in 1459 at the age of 77. So he had a good 20 years uh, roving the coastline of the Baltic Sea and swashbuckling his way around. You don't really think of retired pirates, do you? No. no you don't. Or like older people in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, like Greybeard. Yeah. yeah, just when you thought you can get out, the game brings you back in again. <laughs> you know, it's always the way. You also hear Pirate King and you assume King of the Pirates rather than <laughs> former, king former King who turned to pirate, piracy. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of my story really about this kind of interesting character who was like probably a bad king. People didn't really like him. But, you know, he just kept on adventuring his way through life yeah. and had a great time. I've heard nothing bad about him. I'm yeah. I'm strongly team Eric. And he was like, imagine being his wife. He's like, I am the daughter of the king of England. And <laughs> you are insisting, you know, my husband's a pirate. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there you go. Cool. So that's my story. That's amazing. Too many Eric's. Love that. I am talking about a woman again this week, which makes it two in a row. Sorry. Um, That's good. <laughs> no, I know. Obviously, it's good. No, it's it's fine. It's fine. It's not yeah, like I managed we're not, to dredge fi- up another one. Yeah. 
There has been at least two women in history. Yeah, and this is the second. Mary Magdalene well, <laughs> and this person. <laughs> Christine de Pizan. Hmm. Cool. Uh, yeah, her name is Christine de Pizan, and she is considered by many to be one of the earliest feminist writers oh, in history. Okay. Uh, so, of course, take the word feminist with an enormous grain of salt because it is the 13 and 1400s and mm. feminist doesn't exist as a concept. Um, but she's still really interesting. So she was born in 1364 in Venice, but as a child, her family moved to France because her father became the astrologer to King Charles V. And so she considered herself French from there on out. When she was 15, she married a guy named Etienne du Castel, who was the royal secretary. And it seems that they had a pretty happy marriage. They had three kids, one of whom became a nun, which we all know is the greatest achievement achievement yeah, a woman yeah, yeah. can uh, attain in her life. Uh, unfortunately, Etienne dies of the plague in 1389, which oh. is a year after Christine's father had died. So all of a sudden she finds herself needing to support her own children and her mother in a world that isn't super accustomed to employing woman, women. I have a quick question. Yep. Is there still a post for the royal astrologer? Does King Charles have one? I'm pretty sure. I, you know Macron definitely has one. I would like to apply, yeah. for sure. This is Martin yeah. Rees, isn't he? <laughs> Professor Martin Rees is the astrologer royal. I think he is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she spends her years tied up in legal proceedings, trying to get her husband's last paycheck and the bonus that was owed him, um, which I just think is so funny because it's so normal, right? Like, I just need yeah. his paycheck. But the bureaucracy is really working against her. She gets bogged down in all this legalese. Uh, and because she's so frustrated by the whole process, she does what anyone would do, which is start writing poetry. Nice. <laughs> I was going to go pirate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Highly profitable enterprise. <laughs> yeah. um, so really, she just started writing poems to distract herself. She wasn't in it for the crass, materialistic life of a poet. <laughs> <laughs> the hedonistic lifestyle. Yeah, Although, exactly. there is a poet laureate, right? So there's yeah. like, yeah. yeah. That's arguably a better career and, choice than astrologer. Definitely the poet laureate is on eight, nine figures. Oh, 100%. Like bling, dripping in ice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but she does start to share her poems around and people start to notice. And by 1393, she has enough written to publish her first book, 100 Ballads. Ballad one. How many, how many, <laughs> how many poems did she include in that um, book? It was actually 99. No, it was 100. Um, uh, I read a couple of them and they are grim. Oh, really? Okay. I'm just going to break you off with a few of the titles. Okay. I'm like a solitary mateless dove. Oh, God. Little the cheer in my face. Uh-huh. Sense you're bent on leaving me. Uh and my favorite... I'm in accord if you would have me die. Okay, and what what are the titles? And <laughs> <laughs> I I'm in accord if you would have so so uh, I I, yeah. I I basically I, would agree with you if you would have me die. It's cool with me. Gosh, she's a bit That's of a misery gun. Really yeah, dark. she was not in a good place in her life. Yeah. Unlike most poets who are just super jolly hockey sticks <laughs> about everything in the world. Um, come at me, poets. But the French court love it. Um, courtly love poems at this time are full of damsels in distress and the knights that come save them mm. from their loneliness and just the general horrors of being a woman. Uh, so Christine starts to have a real audience. And 
maybe emboldened by this, she starts to get a bit provocative with her work. So, as I'm sure you're both aware, there was a bestseller called The Romance of the Rose, mm-hmm. written by a guy named Jean de Muen, yeah. uh, written about a century before. We've all read mm-hmm. it? Yep. I have read it. <laughs> yep. Yes, what did you think of it? I thought it was a bit contrived, <laughs> but on balance, I would yeah. recommend it. Yeah. I, I like the descriptions of the, the, the rose. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember, you t- I remember you talking about yeah. that in our book club. Yeah. <laughs> Anna, back to you. <laughs> well, as uh, Will and Aunt no doubt remember, it is an allegorical poem talking about how yeah, a man allegorical. must conquer various obstacles in a garden in order to win the virginity of his lover. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> gotta win that virginity the by conquering yeah. your garden. Yeah. Yeah. What? It's an allegory. Okay, fine. <laughs> like um, like slightly uneven paving slabs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get rid of those pestrous snails. Oh God, what is that a metaphor for? <laughs> what are the snails? Anyway, so the women in the poem are obviously all these like vile temptresses and seducers and basically the source of all evil in the world. Mm. But you still want to get to them, I oh, yeah. guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the best part about them. <laughs> this is our tragedy. <laughs> Uh, so Christine reads this and is like, okay, forget this. Women shouldn't be portrayed like this, despite the curse. <laughs> she writes a response called Tale of the Rose that basically calls out all this misogyny. And then she gets into these heated written arguments with various court officials about it, then publishes all the letters they'd written to each other, where she basically like negs herself and her writing ability as a way to show what they were doing it's it's very sophisticated that's pretty cool yeah that's really cool it is cool so i mean this is like late 14th century and she's bold enough to yeah i can imagine like the the social pressure and all kinds of stuff and yeah they should they should have just given that check and the bonus i think (laughs) i know know. (laughs) i've been saving a lot of pain so she gets a lot of (laughs) so hang on who's that you say you're suggesting men should have given yeah yeah. the bureaucracy what do you think it was full of women yeah Yeah. (laughs) exactly (laughs) at that time yeah Fine. (laughs) I'm not like against her. I'm just saying there isn't like. Why do you hate women? (laughs) You're such a classic pro rosist. You are. Oh my god. I'm sorry. Sorry, Anna. You were speaking. (laughs) Are are you done, Will? (laughs) Yes, I'm done. Okay. All right. I'll go again. (laughs) This is all going to be edited out. (laughs) No, no, I love it. So much trouble. So she, um, so much like Ant, she finds fans who support her and mm. not just enemies like Will, who thinks she should <laughs> be quiet and get back in the kitchen. Uh, but one of her big fans is Queen Isabeau, who, if you remember, I talked about Charles VI a few yeah. weeks ago. So yeah. he's the French king who probably had schizophrenia. Yes, and, yes, yeah. yes, that's it. Yeah. So it, Queen Isabeau is his wife, and she's essentially the regent while he's unwell. Um, and Isabeau is a big fan of Christine, which is great. Uh, and then Christine, with the support of the Queen and the court, uh, publishes her two most famous books, The Book of the City of Ladies and The Treasure of the City of Ladies, um, which I think is the name of the fifth Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Treasure of the City of Ladies. Yeah. Is um, it more ladies? <laughs> <laughs> you have to pick the dusty one. Um <laughs> Sorry, that was a grail reference. I recently watched them all on an airplane. Uh, Anyway, these books were about women's historical contributions to society and how women of all walks of life should cultivate, 
quote, useful qualities in a world dominated by men. And she describes a utopian paradise where women could live free from oppression and discrimination. And through the characters in the books, she argues that stereotypes of women can be sustained only if women are prevented from entering the conversation. That's really I know. progressive. And yeah, I really, really love cool. all of that. And, and did, did she detail what these qualities are? Or? Well, yeah, because this is like around the yeah, 1400s, yeah. it's like, you know, being a chaste and godly wife. <laughs> But <laughs> <laughs> right, so, wait, 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 wait. So, so on one hand, she's like, yeah, you can be anything you want. You can do what you dream. A society full of women in the, in the conversation, but you should be a chaste wife. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you don't have to settle for being middlingly chaste. You know, you <laughs> can be as yeah, chaste as you want to be. You can be super chaste. Yeah. And there are other things, but like it is all, that's why it's really hard to call her a feminist because yeah. in the context of the time, the fact that she had opinions at all yes, yeah. was remarkable, but her opinions were quite antiquated to what we <laughs> well, would mean, say now. I guess what you'd, what you'd expect when she's just taken massive strides forward yeah. in many ways. Yeah. And, and it's not just like, you know, be subservient, but it's like be be godly and support your husband and all that sort of stuff so you know we'll give her a pass um she also goes into she doesn't only write about lady things she is commissioned to write a book on the art of war Mm -hmm. uh that talks about just war and the reasons for waging war and how Hmm. you can prevent it sorry just war as in justified war yeah just like like, just just war theory yeah (laughs) i'm talking about only war (sighs) uh no just war like just war theory um, and and is there such a thing as a just war and what does chivalry mean and all that sort of no, stuff. She also wrote the Book of Peace where she talks about good government and what a government owes to its people. So she's really kind of yeah. branching out. She's a scholar. She's, um, you know, not just doing lady stuff. Um, Queen Isabeau appoints her as an official court writer and diplomat. And um, queens and princesses throughout Europe start to read her work. Uh, especially those who are involved in regencies because she has all these ideas about Mm. government and how you can be there for your people. Um, Unfortunately, in 1415, the French are soundly defeated at the Battle of Agincourt. And... uh, (laughs) Comment? Uh, They were absolutely hammered. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, apparently Christine is so saddened by this event that she gives up her position in court and spends the last years of her life in a convent. Good, good. All right, so she does finally progress to the ultimate station yeah, she, of nunhood. She reaches she, she reaches her womanhood by joining a convent. Um, but while in the convent, she is very inspired by Joan of Arc. Uh, in, and in 1429, Christine writes her final work, which is called The Tale of Joan of Arc, making it the first and only piece about Joan of Arc written dur- during Joan's oh, right. lifetime. Okay, so, mm-hmm. wow, okay. Because Joan of Arc was captured and then executed in 1431. Uh, the good news is that Christine doesn't live to see that happen because Christine dies in 1430. Uh. <laughs> so when she dies, Joan of Arc is still out there doing good for all womankind. Um, Sorry, all... Except for English womankind, oh, with, yeah. with whose Jews at war, <laughs> to be clear. French womankind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh sorry. Yeah, yeah. Christine de Pizan really cares about women, but not the English. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, and yeah, so she goes kind of undiscussed and undiscovered for several centuries, but then is resurrected by later scholars for being the first professional woman of letters in Europe and for all these early sort of proto feminist mm. themes in yeah. her writing. So that is Christine de Pizan. Thank you. 
Well, thanks for joining us. That's everything you'd ever need to know about the year 1430. Indeed it was. And that means all that's left to do is for Will to get us a new number from the RNG. That's right. And before I do, just a reminder that we uh, really enjoy it when Mm -hmm. people tell their friends about the podcast. So if you haven't told a friend in the last three or four days yeah yeah um then tell, please tell please. them again how do we know that please they've do. told their friends though Should tell they... us when you tell your yeah. friend yes tell us cc us on and your conversation if you're a friend that has been referred to us you should also tell us yes by um I, in fact i just think increased communication all around is probably a good idea <laughs> so you yeah. can you can tweet us at randomly generated history nope at, you can tweet us at randomly history randomly history at randomly history <laughs> or you can email us at the randomly generated history club. Nope. You can email us at randomly generated history at yeah, gmail.com. No, there's no definitive article there. <laughs> randomly generated history yeah, okay. at gmail.com. Maybe this is why people aren't communicating so much, because I've been telling people the email address for so long now. You can also find all of this information with a quick Google search. Yeah, yes. just randomly generated history. And there is a financial com. incentive as well. For every person you refer, you'll receive, you'll receive £250,000 from Ant. <laughs> That's a legally binding that contract. Legally binding. Legally binding. I, I'm under Okay, duress. right. So let's fire up the random number generator. <laughs> and it is whirring away. And the next year for next week is going to be... 10 BCE. <laughs> can I... Can 10, I 10 BCE, 10, that's it. Just 10 can I, BCE. Can I sub out for one of our new referred friends? <laughs> Well, if you pay him 250 grand, you can do I will pay you, you 250,000 pounds to research and talk about the year 10 BC. Let's next set year. ourselves a challenge that we can't use the word Roman. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> Nothing right. else happened during that time. Nothing. I mean, yeah, I'm it's probably true. probably No. Yeah. That's good. That's good Rome though. That's exciting Rome. We're getting close to, you know, Christy Rome and Christy Rome? Yeah. Christy Rome. Christy Rome. What happened? Why? Okay. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, a lot goes down with that guy. Really? Yeah. I've not heard of him. <laughs> okay, I'll send you a pamphlet. <laughs> Great, well, we'll see you next week. For 10 <laughs> For BCE. 10 BCE. <laughs> uh, and get referring to earn your, your sweet, sweet 250K. Adieu. I'm going to be so poor. Mm-hmm.